Hello and welcome to the Natural History Podcast. It has been a while since we last touched base. I've been rebuilding half of my house and setting up a business, so apologies, but hopefully we can get back to a semi-casual once-a-month or so basis. And Mark assured that at no point was I ever going to give up. We will get to the end, which is going to be about the last Ice Age. So, we're 4.5 billion years ago, let's crack on. Now, we left off with the creation of the Moon from the Earth and Thea colliding. We shall now be entering the Precambrian Age, the first and largest period of Earth's history, which lasted a mind-boggling 4 billion years, which is just a crazy amount of time. If you would like to get your head around these timescales, then there is an older episode called Deep Time, which does go over geological time. Once all the planet's smashing moon-making was over, the Earth began to cool. The molten material began to separate out. Heavy iron moved to the centre of the Earth, and the lighter elements, such as silica, moved to the surface. The lighter elements all mixed together and created the crust. Water, being oxygen and hydrogen, both floated right to the surface to make the oceans. The crust is the bit we are currently living on now which is between 20 and 30 miles deep of solid rock. The ocean beds are also part of the crust. Interestingly, the Russians during the Cold War tried to drill down as far as they could into the crust. The project ran from the 1970s into the early 90s, stopping and restarting a few times, but they managed to reach an amazing 7.5 miles deep, creating the deepest hole in the world. The project eventually ground to halt because the rock at the depth began to act more like a fluid than a solid, making drilling, well, impossible. There was also the collapse of the USSR, which may have had something to do with it. However, the science gleamed was remarkable. Geologists were able to understand the structure of the Earth much better, putting to test such theories as Conrad's discontinuity, which changed our understanding of seismology, but the best bit was the microscopic fossils, over 2 billion years old, were found at the bottom. Moving back above ground, as the Earth created the crust, continents were also formed. Europe, Africa, North and South America, Asia, Australia and the Antarctic are the big seven. We do get smaller continents, India and Madagascar are just two. In fact, England used to be a microcontinent in itself before joining the European plate. The physical separation I'm sure the Brexit party are currently working on now. I did actually cover this in more detail in another episode called The Great Divide. And that's where England and Scotland became one country after being two different continents. As you may have gathered, the continents are never actually very static. It may feel like it to us, but over hundreds of millions of years, they move. The movement causes earthquakes as they rub up together, or if they are drifting apart, the separation creates volcanic chains. Which is just a fancy way of saying a line of volcanoes. Now, you may remember being taught about continents drifting at school, but until the 1960s, it was considered a little bit loopy by the mainstream in geology. In 1915, the idea was first published by Alfred Wagner, 
in his book The Origin of Continents and Oceans, whilst manning weather stations for the German army in World War I. He proposed, like many of us did as children looking at a world map, that the continents of the world fitted together. And this giant supercontinent is how we see so many similar plants and animals in different countries separated by oceans. Up till then, giant land bridges, which had subsequently eroded away, was the most widely accepted theory for connections between continents. Which, where credit is due, is not a completely outlandish idea. As there used to be a land bridge between Russia and America, known as the Bering Strait. But, unperturbed by a lack of followers, Wagner collected evidence after the war. Finding evidence of fossilised coral reefs in cold latitudes, evidence for glaciation in equatorial regions, and matching rocks from mountain ranges divided by oceans, a rather impressive collection which sadly never came to anything, as Wagner died while out on an expedition to Greenland in 1930 and so never saw the fruits of his labour. It was not until the 1950s when the magnetometer was available to study rocks did the evidence Wagner was after come to light. Now, a magnetometer is an instrument which can read the magnetic field of volcanic rocks. Newly formed volcanic rocks crystallise facing magnetic north, no matter where they are on Earth. Taking this and comparing it to older rocks, we soon discover that rocks of the same age on different continents pointed in different directions. When the continents were put back together, as Wagner had suggested, did the magnetic alignment match. To use an analogy, take a jigsaw puzzle. The continents of the world will only fit together in one specific way if you want them all to point north. If one continent is out by 90 degrees, you will certainly know about it. And that is how we know about past positions of continents. Magnetic crystals contained within rocks create a jigsaw puzzle. I shall also quickly mention that in World War II, the magnetometer, whilst being used to discover enemy submarines, also discovered that the seabed of the Atlantic was stripy. Right down the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, between America and Europe, running north to south, is a gap between the two continents. They are currently moving away from each other at about the speed your fingernails grow each year. As they move apart, lava from the Earth's core moves up and fills the newly created space. As the lava cools, it locks in the Earth's magnetic data for that time. What geologists have discovered is that the Earth's magnetic pole switches. Magnetic north suddenly becomes magnetic south, and then after a few hundred thousand years it will switch back to magnetic north again. This is called geomagnetic reversal. It also last happened 780,000 years ago. But the regular pattern is between 200 and 300,000 years, so we're a little bit overdue for a correction. The result of the pole switching is not really something we know much about, but it was suggested in a paper published recently that it weakens the Earth's protective atmosphere, and that it may have been one of the reasons that the Neanderthals died out. Understanding how the poles switch is all built upon the work of many of the early pioneers. 
One such person was James Hutton in 1785. He came up with something called uniformitarianism. The idea is that the earth recycles itself. Rock that was created, let's say by a volcano, is eroded away. It becomes a fine sediment only to be turned back into a different type of rock over the next few million years. Also, the older rock is deeper underground, and the newer rock, well, it's on top. Another way to think of this is the laundry basket. The clothes you wore last week are at the bottom. The clothes you wore yesterday are at the top. We have a history of what you have been wearing over the past few days in your laundry bag. The rock record is exactly like this. The oldest rock is right at the bottom. Now, you may occasionally go digging through your laundry pile if you are a little desperately short of clothes. This messes up the whole history of your past week's wardrobe. When it comes to the Earth, we replace humans with continents. They come along, arbite very slowly, and push rocks up in every direction, creating mountains. Sometimes they bring the oldest rocks from the deep, exposing them to the surface. And this is what happened in Canada, Quebec on the eastern shore of the Hudson Bay. I'm not going to try and pronounce the name as I shall only butcher it. However, if you type in the oldest rocks on a search engine, you will find the location quite quickly. These rocks are 4.28 billion years old. This is the oldest thing you can hold on Earth. Older than everything around you, apart from silver and gold, which we know were created in a supernova during the first episode. But these rocks are the oldest Earth-made object. In the UK, you can hold rocks almost as old as those in Canada. They are Precambrian, and you can find them on the west coast of Scotland, most of the Outer Hebridean Islands, or even in Cornwall. So, we have the oldest rock, but it isn't the oldest thing created by Earth. In fact, there is something older than the Canadian rocks. A crystal, a zircon to be exact. This zircon is 4.39 billion-ish years old and was found in the Jack Hills of Australia. It is a tiny crystal that needs a microscope to be seen properly. So small you can't hold it in your hand, so much as place it in your hand and hope you don't lose it. Yet it has shed a whole new light on Earth's very early history. As the zircon, if dated correctly, and there is much debate about that, it will have needed water to form, and this means that Earth must have cooled down much faster than previously thought. So by 4.4 billion years ago, we could have actually been looking at a hard crust and oceans around the world, not some kind of fireball. And that sums up the first part of the birth of the Earth, a cooling down process where continents and oceans formed. But no sooner had they formed, the Earth underwent the late heavy bombardment. I don't know why it was late, but this was a meteor shower on an apocalyptic scale. It lasted for around two to four hundred million years, and studies based upon the impacts of Mars suggest that Earth was pounded by 59 tons 
of rock per square meter. It was supposed to be so intense the earth turned back into a ball of fire. Which can't be entirely true as we wouldn't have our rocks and zircons. NASA did a calculation on this and found that a meteor 310 miles in diameter, about the size of the UK or Texas, hitting the earth, would result in all of the oceans being vaporised. We must bear in mind as well that the atmosphere would not yet have been developed and so we would have really had the full force of the impact, with meteorites not burning up upon entry. It is generally agreed that the bombardment ended 3.8 billion years ago. But the whole problem with sequencing events around this time all boils down to how you actually date the rock. And when you're stretching that far back in time, the methods used become less and less accurate. So, how do you date a rock that is 4 billion years old? We use something called radiometric dating. Google would have you believe it is the way to find your perfect match. But radiometric dating in our use uses the decay of elements to work out a date. Uranium to lead is a common measurement, as over time, uranium will slowly turn into lead. This is because the uranium is decaying and losing its radioactivity. And it loses its radioactivity at a very predictable rate. For example, let's say that uranium turns to lead over the course of a thousand years. The rock we want to date is examined and we discover the uranium is now 50% lead. We can deduct that the rock would be 500 years old. Therefore, anything we find in that rock strata stroke layer is 500 years old. Now, I must mention uranium does not decay that fast. It takes billions of years to decay, not 1,000. But I hope you get the point. Now, you may have clocked me earlier saying that the water floated to the surface as the earth cooled down. Well, that may not have been entirely true. There is a strain of thought that the water was brought to the earth by the meteorites during the late heavy bombardment. But that does not explain how the zircon was formed. Maybe the meteorites brought even more water to the planet, who knows, but now we get a glimpse how confusing and contradictory geological time really is. Either way, we are now left with an earth cooling down with water on it, which are the key foundations of life. However, we'd better leave it there for today. I do have a website which I'll post the script on and maybe a few of the little pictures and yeah thank you for listening to the natural history podcast